Hello and welcome to the Total Clarity Podcast. I'm Mike Varley. And I'm Jesse Hyatt. And this is week 46 of our 52-week walk around New York City. Yeah, it's our 46th week of walking and it's our 50th podcast episode. That's right. Nice big round number. You know we like those. Oh yeah. Keeping track of them. So yeah, half a century is worth of podcast once a week. Uh, I think we've done a pretty good job. I hope you agree. And we've got a special walk this week as we return to the borough of Brooklyn after being in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. And it's special for a couple of reasons. One of them is that this is the first walk we're doing that's based on an existing program. Right, so usually the walks are our own sort of walking tours that Mike created before we started this project by researching a little bit of history and location and sort of making our own routes. But this one is actually based on some routes that were created by other people. So we got to just follow along and learn from what they had already researched. That's right. Three different Brooklyn organizations came together to make this walk. It's called In Pursuit of Freedom, and it deals with the abolitionist movement in the 1700s and 1800s in New York City. Yeah, so the three organizations that came together to make this were Weeksville Heritage Society, the Irondale Ensemble Project, and the Brooklyn Historical Society. That's right. And the Irondale Project in particular, they did a theater piece called Color Between the Lines. Mm -hmm. uh, it, there's some excerpts from it on YouTube. We watched the whole thing. Yeah. It was great. We recommend it. Yeah, and we were lucky enough to talk with Terry from Irondale. We did a Zoom call and learned about how it was that this project came together and how it was with three organizations coming together and working to research and bringing the, you know, Irondale brought a lot of creative energy. The Historical Society of Brooklyn brought a lot of research. Weeksville Heritage Society had a lot of knowledge and history at their place. So it was really interesting to hear from a firsthand perspective what it was like to make this tour before we actually went out and toured it. That's right. So we're going to hop around to the different neighborhoods uh, they put together. And Jesse's going to be reading some of the information from the tour. We have a, a link to the PDF that corresponds with it. If you really want to follow along with us, yeah. we'll include it in the YouTube description. And in that, like Mike just said, in all of these locations that we went, we actually followed, there's a PDF that has descriptions of the different places. So everything you hear me reading is directly from that PDF. And part of why I'm calling that out is because it's not history that we researched, it's history that these uh, more professional organizations researched. And I also felt like the language is it's interesting, especially because it has to deal with people of color and slavery and the abolitionist movement. There was, you know, the way that people are referred to is based on the historical time and what it is written in that PDF. So any language that you hear me saying, that is what is written on the page. That's right. She's not just making up things from her phone. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, we're gonna be hopping around with the camera. You may notice that the first spot we're gonna be at, Dumbo, a little noisy. It's not like the past few episodes where we've been in parks in the Bronx. So it's a little change of pace. Hopefully you can hear us all right. But without further ado, let's get to the walk-in. Okay, so we're here at Fulton Ferry Landing 
stop one in the Dumbo section of the In Pursuit of Freedom map. Right. And this is a very different scene from what you would have seen back in the 17 and 1800s. Very different in many ways. Also, not that different in maybe just one way where it still is a dock. That's right, that's right. Those and two bridges still our boats. would not have been there. The bridges wouldn't have been and there. And the main way to get from across the water over there in Manhattan to here in Brooklyn was through Fulton Ferry. Right. So all the way from when Brooklyn was just a village up till when it became a city, coming back and forth from this point was the way that you commuted. And uh, yeah, it's, it, you're right. It does, there are, I mean, there are aspects to this that still feel, you know, very much like a, a dock and a, a place of marine uh, transport. There's, right, but the modern infrastructure, like you called out, of course, the bridges, the yeah. types of boats, yeah. definitely. Even the feeling of fanciness that this dock has right now is only about 10 years old, so it definitely wasn't right. like this hundreds of years ago. Yeah. The buildings across the way, some of those are brand new as well. <laughs> so <laughs> definitely the, the whole modern energy clearly wasn't here, yeah. but... And I believe, is that the modern ferry system or is it just a, a boat that looks like the ferry? That... I think that is the ferry. I was going to call it out if as definitively the ferry, but yeah, then I got a little not, confused. It says something on the front yeah. that I can't quite read. Yeah. It definitely looks like the ferries that are used these yeah. days. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> it either is or it isn't. Either way, that's the ferry stop right there. So you can, they are trying to make an effort to revive the system over the past few years. Yeah, although this is kind of an aside, but you know, we're here. The ferries have not been used very much during COVID yeah. and they've been considering how are they going to manage the budget of the the whole public transportation. And one of the options is to discontinue ferry service for a while yeah. or to like make it less. Yeah, yeah that is definitely a topic on the, uh, the, mayor the mayoral candidates are all weighing in on. Yeah. But you can see right now it's uh, definitely much more of a um, destination for both uh, tourists and for people that are, you know, locals and just want to do something on the weekend or right. spend a nice time. Lots of ice cream shops around. There's a Shake Shack across the way. Uh, and, you know, at the time of that the In Pursuit of Freedom module covers, you know, from the, you know, late 1700s up to the mid 1800s. This was a very different space in terms of it being residential and industrial shipping and things like that. Right. Say Luke's lobster roll over here. Now in this area of the tour in particular, there are not a lot of existing structures that are around today. So we'll be stopping at a couple of different spots and when we do so, we'll be taking a look at what it is now more than what it is or what it was then.
Right. Yeah, I guess in line with what we just said about that, the port area yeah. feeling so different. That's, you know, it's all been, it seems like this whole area has been pretty knocked down and rebuilt. Yeah. And it's still being built, if you can As hear the construction. As you can probably hear. <laughs> it's a pretty loud part of Brooklyn. Between yeah. the Dumbo, the between the Manhattan Bridge and the construction, helicopters going over constantly. Yeah, being like, even just being uh, a lot of cobblestone streets around here. Yeah. Definitely, yeah, lots of noise. But that doesn't. Uh... Are you guys vaccinated? Yeah. yeah. Because I'm here to help people to get them. Done. We are. Oh, 100%. We're double vaxxed. Have a great day. Thanks. Okay. We haven't talked about that on the podcast, but uh, secrets out. Yeah. We're double vexed now. Yeah, as of, well, when this comes out, it'll be Tuesday. Yeah. And we will be like 10, 10 days post second vax. Yeah. When this comes out. So, feeling good. Feeling good. Oh God. Also, also. <laughs> earlier this week, I got hit in the head with a pigeon. <laughs> she did, and Jesse constantly complains about how the pigeons are out to get her and they don't know what they're doing. And I'm usually defending the pigeons, but I gotta say, it really just flew right into her head. <laughs> it just flew straight into my head from behind. Yeah. Which I think was better because. When it's you know when it's flying in front of me, I I freak out. Yeah. But it just yeah it just flew, just grazed the top of my head from behind and landed in front. It was one of the pigeons that's like brown and white. Yeah, it was yeah. a fairly nice looking pigeon I'd say. On the scale of pigeon attractiveness, it was a fairly unusual one. Yeah. I didn't think it realized it hit me. Yeah. But anyway. We're under the. Brooklyn Bridge now. And we're turning onto Front Street, I believe. Yes, Front Street. And there's a couple different excerpts from the program we're going to read off. Jesse's going to read them while I navigate with the camera. Yes. See more construction here. But there are two sections Jesse's going to read off of, and that's uh, Mr. Mill's Tavern and the home of Henry C. Thompson. Right. So, Mr. Mill's Tavern, which was on Main and Front Streets, which is just up ahead, yep. says, picture nothing here but wood-framed houses, taverns, and shops. Main Street once extended all the way up the hill to Old Fulton Street, but many buildings were demolished during the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge, which began in 1870. This parking lot, which is not even a parking isn't lot even anymore. a parking lot anymore, it's becoming Olympia Dumbo, but this Olympia Dumbo was the location of Mills Tavern, 
1818, it was the starting place for a procession organized by the Brooklyn African Woman Benevolent Society, which was a group of free black Brooklynites who came together to assist one another. They took the Woolman name in honor of Quaker abolitionist John Woolman. The march ended at the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which was Brooklyn's first African-American denomination in downtown Brooklyn. Yeah, and the Woolman uh, Society is something that will come up a couple other times while we walk through here. And I had not heard of him before. I looked him up, and uh, he's a pretty interesting character, a Quaker that lived from like 1712 to right before the Revolutionary War. Right. And uh, he, you know, he really was principled in that he didn't think that slavery should exist. And, right. And kind of managed to persuade a, a bunch of people based on the descriptions that I read about him that it was inappropriate and ended up dying over in England of smallpox when he oh. was touring, you know, about speaking out against slavery. Oh, no. I think they referenced him in the play that was put on at Irondale as part of this project, which we'll link to, and maybe we'll talk about it again later. Yeah. So the other location that was right around here is Henry C. Thompson's shoe and boot blacking business. Yeah. And the description says, south of this corner was Henry C. Thompson's boot blacking business. Thompson was an African-American businessman with a busy shoe shine and repair shop. Most people during this period only owned one or two pairs of shoes. They would have relied on Thompson's crucial business to repair their shoes until they were totally worn out. As an activist, Thompson was a member of the Brooklyn African Woolman Benevolent Society, which we just spoke about, and later became an early investor in Weeksville which was the African-American community founded in 1838 in what is now Crown Heights. That's right. Weeksville is a bit further east of where we'll be walking around right now, but it comes up a, a bunch of times, and uh, it's a really cool spot. I, we're going to check it out a little bit later. Yeah, and just a, I think a quick and easy description of what Weeksville was at the time was uh, a community kind of like its own its own village or its own town yeah. that was specifically for free african-american people that's right and it allowed them to have homes and businesses and support one another just like the rest of you know brooklyn was doing themselves but it allowed for the African-American community to actually have some sort of voting rights and property and all That's the right. things that people want in That's society. That's right. It was the largest urban community of African-Americans pre-Civil War. Yeah. And yeah. as Jesse referenced, once in New York City they made it so that, or in New York State, so that you had to own land, uh, $250 worth in order to vote, uh, this enabled the opportunity for free African-American men to vote at that time. Yeah, and just one more note about that before we move back to where we currently are. Yeah. That was a community that was founded by African-American people. Right. It wasn't something that was like set up by the 
government at the time. That's right. It was it was a you know community led and run town. Yeah. And uh, Henry was one of those founders. There's a couple of others that will uh, come across as we're walking around. So now we're gonna go to the home of the Kroger brothers, Peter and Benjamin. They had homes on Pearl Street, which is under the very noisy Manhattan Bridge. Maybe if we're lucky, we'll skip in between trains. Hope so. Oh, we should uh, pop down here just for a second. If I am recalling my geography correctly, this is the little secret alleyway that goes under the Manhattan Bridge that Jesse and I really like. There's barely anyone in here. Yeah. And it really feels like it's this secret little spot that yeah. not many people know about. On the episode where we talked about getting engaged, I mentioned that there was another spot that I was considering proposing, and that was another spot that I considered oh, proposing. Oh, that would be cute too. Yeah. We picked the spot that was right. No, the spot that was, I mean, I could hear you at yeah. the spot that you ended up picking. I might have, you might have brought me here and I'd be like, what? Why are you walking so slowly? <laughs> what are you doing down there? What are you waiting for? <laughs> All right. So we're on Pearl Street now. You can see, you can see why it's an attraction to come down here too. It's just, it feels fun and different from yeah. the rest of the city. I think there's even like a clown store or something. A clown store? I think so, like some kind of like, party store or something. So I think actually where they lived is right up ahead there, but maybe we'll stick out here for a minute to read about them once it once the trains pass. Benjamin Kroger's home, or homes. It says, before the Jehovah's Witnesses built these 20th century factories to house their printing presses, this area was residential. Peter Kroger moved here from James Street sometime after 1820. He and his family lived only two doors away from his brother, Benjamin Kroger. The Kroger brothers were listed in city directories as cleric, preacher and class leader, and they were among the pillars of the African-American community. Yeah, so they had their hands in a lot of foundational organizations that we'll be discussing. And I'll probably, you know, say this again, but it, it's a really 
amazing job accumulating all of these beans. Touchstones that allow us to condense history into smaller, more digestible pieces, but it really takes an entire community to make a movement happen. Yeah. that was working on this project, one of the researchers. And she was saying that, if memory serves correctly, I believe it took a number of years to do all the research for this project. And she was saying that in that research, they would, they amassed like hundreds if not thousands of names or characters right and a lot of them would only show up once or twice as opposed to what you're talking what you're saying like we often hear in history books about like one person who we have a whole story for but i think what's really cool about this project or one of the things that's really cool about this project is that they've listed all these little stories like right. a large thing happen as opposed to hearing about one person that did a huge thing like yeah. it feels it almost feels like inspiring for future generations to work together yeah yeah i agree so we're coming up on our last stop on the dumbo section here, and this is Sand Street. Sand Street 
named after a pair of brothers that were instrumental in forming this area in terms of real estate. Right. And showcases another great aspect of this project, which is it's not just about the people that are on the right side of history, it's also about the people that were in conflict with the abolitionist movement, either explicitly or implicitly through how they lived their life. Right, which I also think is uh, contradictory, maybe is the right word, to how we normally learn about history, especially here, where we're usually just celebrating the things that we want to be proud of. I think it is really important to also not celebrate, but be aware of the people that were doing things in history that weren't positive. Yeah, so let's read about the so, Sands So yeah, so Sands Street. Yeah. In 1784, brothers Comfort and Joshua Sands bought 160 acres along the Brooklyn waterfront for $12,000. As a result, the Sands family once owned most of Dumbo and Vinegar Hill area. Joshua Sands was a congressman and president of the Board of Trustees of the Village of Brooklyn. He also owned a rope walk where he manufactured shipping, rigging, and various kinds of rope. His brother, Comfort, was a founder and director of the Bank of New York and president of the New York Chamber of Commerce. In this area, which is now a barren entryway to two bridges, <laughs> uh, once stood homes and shops. Sand Street was an important thoroughfare between the town of Brooklyn and the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which was established by the federal government in 1801. Now it runs through the neighborhood of Vinegar Hill, which is named after a battlefield in Ireland. It was named by the Irish immigrants who settled here after 1820. Early Brooklynites included people of Dutch, German, English, French, Scandinavian, Belgian, Irish, and African descent. Yeah. So that's it for this section. There is one other thing I'm going to call out now, which is the Sand Street Methodist Church, which we will hear about in another section. It's pretty controversial in how it decided to treat its congregants. But we will get to that as we now move into the downtown Brooklyn section of the walk. So we are now in the downtown Brooklyn section of the In Pursuit of Freedom walking tour. That's right. And we're currently in front of the Thomas and Harriet Trudell home. That's right. This is one of our, our first existing structure that we're checking out here. And as you can see, or I guess as you can't see, but as we could see by looking in the windows, it actually looks like it might not be existing for much longer. Yeah. It seems like you, what you can see is that right next to this home, there's a massive construction lot. And you can also probably see that on the home, a lot of the windows are busted. It's all gated up. Yeah. Um, it's unfortunate. I mean, you know, I find it unfortunate because it's a cool, you know, it's a, it's a landmark. It's also just a cool looking old building. I really, the tiles on the front are kind yeah. of interesting, but. Part of our auxiliary research involved an untapped cities article that we can provide a link to in the description below. And that covered 
10 different locations in both Brooklyn and Manhattan that were underground railroad sites. And there was a bit, more than a bit, of uh, controversy or argument over the way that the development project that covered this area handled the building both here and two other buildings nearby that were apparently originally connected by underground tunnels. Right. You, you told me earlier that the building down there, which I now think is an Indigo Hotel, yeah. um, to this building, that there, is, there was or is a tunnel underneath the street, right? But yeah, let's, uh, let's read what it says in the In Pursuit of Freedom text. Yes. The Trudells were originally from Providence, Rhode Island, where they were active in abolitionist organizations. Thomas was a founding member of the Rhode Island Anti-Slavery Society. Harriet was treasurer of the Providence Ladies Anti-Slavery Society. The couple moved to Brooklyn sometime before 1840 and lived here between 1851 and 1863. They were close friends with Bostonian William Lloyd Garrison, who founded The Liberator, which was an abolitionist newspaper. Garrison stayed with the Trudells at their Brooklyn home in 1840. Yeah. So in the Untapped Cities article, it references the idea that this would be turned into a museum. There's no date on the Untapped Cities article, but as you can see, it does not look like that is currently in the plans. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe that's what, I don't know. Hopefully that is what's, what's happening it's unclear yeah. it also looks like it's in rough shape yeah yeah so let's continue walking along well, much like the dumbo section you can see that the period of time that has passed has changed the complexion of this particular area greatly yeah which is not uncommon in New York City. I think, though, of the, the three neighborhoods, we'll be visiting Brooklyn Heights in this cluster next. That area has managed to maintain, I guess, a good deal of what I believe it was like at that time. Yeah. I feel like there might be more homes there now than there were at that time, but like the style maybe seems right. similar. Well, it's kind of a question of, you know, people having a communal sense of what the identity of an area is and, you know, having the money to fight off uh, people that want to change that identity. Right. So we're gonna pop a left here in just a second. Okay. Everybody really needs to get to that light. They're not going to. It's very important. <laughs> it's a Friday. People are cranky. <laughs> So we're turning onto Bridge Street here. That is 
And we don't have, I believe, there's not an exact address listed. Right. It was just known that the Gloucester family lived here. Yes, so it says just south of Willoughby Avenue on Bridge Street in the old numbering system. Oh, there is, a, there is an exact address, but it's not current. Uh, <laughs> in the old numbering system stood 290 Bridge, the home of Reverend James Gloucester, his wife Elizabeth, and their children. James was the founder and pastor of Siloam Presbyterian Church, which stood nearby on Prince Street. Elizabeth was a brilliant businesswoman and the owner of Remsen House, which was an elegant boarding house in Brooklyn Heights. They were both active abolitionists and close friends of John Brown. John Brown being of the Harper's Ferry Raid, which was very famous and uh, inciting and galvanizing at the time. Right. And I think a nice aspect of the Gloucesters that was highlighted by the In Pursuit of Freedom uh, program was that Elizabeth was a businesswoman of considerable skill. And we'll have an opportunity to visit the location where her boarding house was in the Brooklyn Heights section too. But yeah, there, I forget what, uh, I believe we are about to come up on an organization that they were instrumental in founding as well. Yes, the American Freedmen's Friends Society? Yeah, which I don't, we don't have a building or an exact location for that either, just a general sense. Right, it's just that it's generally in this area on the other side of Willoughby. Yeah. Long before the Metro Tech complex was built, busy Myrtle Avenue consisted of shops and homes. The American Freedmen's Friends Society stood on this block between Bridge and Duffield Streets. It was the local branch of a multi-city organization led by local residents James and Elizabeth Gloucester, whose mission was to aid newly emancipated people after the Civil War. Here, people could find assistance in finding homes, jobs, uh, and employment. Yeah. I read that earlier this week and given the current circumstances of the pandemic I was struck by a thought that I'm I don't know if I'd really had before which was you know the idea of emancipating slaves is a tremendous humanitarian disaster project essentially you have 3.9 million previously enslaved people that have been suppressed in their skills and given no real uh, direction or ability to help themselves. Yes. And how did people back then help, you know? And yeah. it, I started looking into some articles and there's another article I found that we can provide a link to as well from 2012 that took a look at that time and the it was a review of a book that had come out and the book had claimed that 
25% of the 3.9 million slaves either fell very sick or died wow. in that period of time. And, you know, you can think about efforts like these where, you know, probably a Band-Aid on just a gash, like a, just a, a wound that was bleeding without really any plan for how to handle this sort of thing. Did it explain why that was happening? Did it explain why that was happening? In the article, I mean, only in the barest sense of they just didn't have, I mean, there was the completion of a war. Okay. Both sides were depleted and probably didn't have the infrastructure, the resources, or the will necessary. For healthcare. Or... For handling that in any meaningful right. way. Okay. And so, I mean, there were instances of uh, people that were uh, slaves having to stay in the same quarters where they were enslaved because there were no other options. Oh, wow. And just basically living their lives in a state that was no better. And so I, it also made me think in a positive way about, you know, we, we always mourn the degree of entitlements that we have in this country and how they're insufficient, and they are, and we can continue to improve them. But there is an infrastructure in place, and there is some sense that these sorts of things should happen. And a lot of the uh, things back then were just people, you know, benevolence organizations, as they were called. You know, the idea that it's like, this is wrong, and we, you know, the government not really having as, as strong of a role as it does now. You in know? providing care for people. Yeah. And yeah. 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 I mean, especially, you know, we're specifically talking about things that have happened in New York City. And uh, I think our city, although, like you said, yeah, there's many, many things that they could still do better. There are quite a number of organizations now that are government run, in addition to mutual aid and churches and the equivalent of the benevolent societies right. that are put in place now for people that need it. Yeah. But you're right, yeah, I mean this, I guess, I guess you're right, this was probably a massive undertaking to help so many people find new skills, figure out how to live on their own, and, and yeah, and, and su have support. And I think as a common theme, a area that we need to work on as a country, you know, it's, we focus on the idea that like, yes, we abolished slavery and we fought over it and we proved definitively that that was not okay. But then the after, immediate aftermath was itself a crisis and yeah. we don't want to focus on that because it's painful and we didn't do as good a job as we probably could have. and. It, yeah, it just clouds a, a happier narrative, and we don't want to we yeah. don't want to contend with that. Right. No, but I do think it's something to think about because, and I don't think it is something I've really given much thought to until now either. Honestly, the but yeah, this idea of like you know abolishing slavery obviously was the right thing to do. Having emancipation but then but then what yeah it's like okay now go out and do 
what? Right. <laughs> like where where do people go and how do people live if you if you've spent your whole life up until that point being considered someone's property and housed and fed in a way that is obviously well below substandard, like not not acceptable. And then you have this additional challenge of never having had to figure out so many things that, I mean, people now still have trouble figuring out, you know, yeah. how to just like house yourself. And, and in an inherently and, hostile area, you know, right. people that right. are enslaved are in the South unless they Ugh. somehow fortunately managed to get to the north and right yeah. yeah and just looking around and not knowing like what person wanted you to be free and what person didn't and how are you yeah how are you going to be treated and yeah. who's a safe person and who's not yeah. yeah so i just paused on this building here it's our next stop and it is a church or it was a church, now it belongs to NYU. Jesse's gonna read about it now. So this is the Bridge Street AWME Church. Yeah. This is one of Brooklyn's greatest church buildings. Built in 1847 as a Congregationalist church, it was purchased by the African Methodist Episcopal Church in 1854 and renamed Bridge Street African Wesleyan Methodist Church. The church assisted newly arrived fugitives from the South and offered refuge to black New Yorkers fleeing Manhattan's draft riots in 1863. In 1938, the congregation moved to Bedford, <laughs> sorry, in eight, 1938, the congregation moved to Bedford-Stuyvesant. Today, the building now serves as the student center of NYU Polytechnic. Gorgeous building. I'd like to go yeah. in sometime. The pandemic prevents us from doing that right now. Sure. Yeah, it is really gorgeous. And there's a placard in the front too, yeah. showing, I guess probably saying a lot of what we just read. Yeah. See in front of us, there's a tent set up with a spin class. Yeah, this is a. We've seen this a couple different places in the city. These Soul Cycle outdoor classes that look like they're in a National Guard tent or something, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. We've only seen a couple in action. Yesterday they were all hooting and hollering together, like oh, wow. the instructor would do a call and response thing. That doesn't sound fun to me, but like I can imagine that some people would think that sounds fun. Yeah. 
So we're approaching J Street now. And there's a trio of landmarks that we'll be hitting along here. Okay, so we're on J Street now. Getting closer back to winding our way to the Dumbo area. Yes. And Jesse, do you want to read the first of our bullet points on this road? Yeah, so it's the corner of Chapel and J Streets, which is just up here past this big church. Mm -hmm. Sylvanus Smith's home. Yeah. Pearl Street once ran through what is now the Concord Village Apartments between J Street and Brooklyn Bridge Boulevard. This busy residential street was once home to Sylvanus Smith, a hog driver and a prominent anti-slavery activist. Smith was one of the original land investors in Weeksville, the second largest black community in pre-Civil War America, located in Brooklyn. He also served as a trustee for the African School or Colored School Number no. 1 in Brooklyn and the Citizens Union Cemetery in Weeksville. His daughter, Susan Smith McKinney Stewart, was the first female African-American doctor in New York State, while her sister, Sarah Smith Tompkins Garnett, was an educator and women's suffrage activist. Yeah, and I'm not sure if we'll get to this area or not within the Weeksville tour, but his daughter was also the head doctor at the old age home, if I recall correctly. Mm. So, you know, a lot of uh, notoriety and prestige there. Sure. Is cool. And this church doesn't have anything to do with that, but it has been here quite some time. Yeah. And I believe it, from the plaque across the way, Pope John Paul II visited there, oh. which is a point of pride for there. Yeah. But yeah, another another investor in Weeksville. It's I I I'm really it makes me intrigued to know how that whole investment system went down. It sounds exciting, like a really daring, exciting idea to try and forge your own community. And I imagine that all these people that were involved were pretty dynamic. Sure. I mean, I think. Forging your own community is an exciting prospect, no matter what, but it also sounds like this in particular was not only an exciting prospect, but also a pretty necessary one in order to live in a way that, you know, was desired. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, a lot was on the line, which I guess in some ways can sound stressful in a negative way, but also, you know, having that much pressure can sometimes be exciting and really make cool things happen. Yeah. All right, so next location here. So. Are, at, are we at J and Nassau now? Yep. Okay, so we are, in that case, 
at the Brooklyn African Woman Benevolent Society and African School. Yeah. And what we know about this here, in 1810, Peter Kroger, Benjamin Kroger, and Joseph Smith, all leaders of Brooklyn's free black community, established the Brooklyn African Woman Benevolent Society. It was a mutual aid organization that provided its members with financial support, especially for widows and orphans, and was named after John Woolman, the Quaker anti-slavery activist that we spoke about earlier. Yeah. This was also the site of the 1831 anti-colonization meeting where black abolitionists rallied against efforts to send black communities to Africa, which was a popular idea in some white anti-slavery circles. Finally, the African school originally founded at Peter Kroger's home on James Street later moved to this location. Yeah. So this is uh, that you mentioned the idea of the the recolonization or the the movement yeah, of uh, African Americans. Colonization. It yeah. says you know they were anti-colonization yeah. here. So I guess the other guy. Yeah, that's something that'll come up again in Brooklyn Heights, and something that there seems to be uh, both versions of that that were xenophobic and and, and racially uh, motivated in a negative way and as well as versions of that that were if I can understand it correctly supported by African-American communities and, and meant to in fact offer competition to the southern uh, cotton production oh yeah Huh. Yeah, that was something that was uh, referenced in the Weeksville area. Oh, interesting. Well. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it'll come up again in Brooklyn Heights. And we have one more stop here. I think I'm only going to go a couple more steps before we get into the zone of Dumbo noise. Yeah. So what we're coming up upon is the corner of J and High Streets, which is where the African Methodist Church would have been. Yeah. In the early 1800s, Brooklyn's free black community worshipped with whites and Native Americans at Sands Street Methodist Church. Yeah. Founded in 1794, it was Brooklyn's oldest Methodist church. But black Brooklynites left after being charged admission to sit in a segregated rear upper gallery and having to listen to pro-slavery sermons. In 1816, Richard Allen and others founded the Independent African Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. Two years later, black Brooklynites raised enough money to build their own AME church, which once stood at this location. Yeah, so right there, High Street and J Street. Right. And that was what I referenced earlier when we were concluding the Dumbo section, was the Sand Street Methodist Church that was charging admission and making people sit in the upper deck and yes yeah, it's just insane you yeah know? but also it sounds like that was motivating to start something different so. yeah i mean it's which i i don't know i obviously with this kind of thing it's like it's hard to 
whatever your first instinct is isn't always really reflective of what how things play out but on one hand it's like wow it's awesome that the community of african-american people that were involved in that church were able to start their own church like that's my first instinct but then i also think like they never should have had to like you know this we we like to think that brooklyn was always so anti-slavery and also anti-segregation but it's clear that that wasn't the case with stories like this yeah and uh yeah especially just in a church setting it feels particularly disgusting when you know to have uh to be preaching anything that is dehumanizing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I just can't imagine going to a church and having to listen to people justify the idea that people that have the same skin color as you should be enslaved and not in control of their own lives. I can't imagine going to church and hearing that people have anyone should be enslaved yeah Yeah. i mean i what you're saying of course it would be but i mean that that what i'm saying is that the justification for that is as arbitrary as skin color yeah no exactly it's crazy okay so we have one more location in this cluster which is the brooklyn heights area and uh we're gonna go there now okay Okay, so we've made it to Brooklyn Heights. We are starting in the noisier area of Brooklyn Heights, and then we're going to move to the quieter area, hopefully. But we are starting at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, or the former Brooklyn Academy of Music, now the Orange Theory Fitness and Flushing Bank. (laughs) From the Pursuit of Freedom tour, we learned that we are standing in the middle of what was once the Brooklyn Academy of Music's Great Hall. The hall, which took up almost half the block, was Brooklyn's premier venue for concerts, lectures, and rallies. On May 15, 1863, as the Civil War raged, Frederick Douglass spoke to a packed audience here. His talk was entitled, What Should Be Done with the Negro? He argued that the only just solution was for African Americans to become full and free American citizens with all of the rights and privileges enjoyed by whites. His speech, often interrupted with applause, was very well received. Yeah, which is very cool. I, yeah, we don't know for certain exactly the details of the Academy of Music, if it moved or if it went away and then came back in the other location. but. It's not the Brooklyn Academy of Music that I know of, you know. The BAM, which we all yeah. refer to as BAM, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it's associated, if it's been around that long, or if it's a new yeah. new one. But a lot of the buildings around here seem to be pretty old. We are noticing the Chipotle has a bunch of really cool Art Deco sort of yeah. style. The bank, the... A cathedral down the way too. Yeah. And then as 
far as the particular content of what you just read, you know, Frederick Douglass's speech demanding for equal uh, rights and yes. privileges of all African American citizens, it's, you know, it's hard to imagine what that would have been like hearing that back then. You know, it's, it's like the way that it's framed in that description is almost as if that there was a, you know, rational debate that was happening about that issue, you know? Sure. And while there was surely debate happening, I, I, it was not, you know, rational in any way, you know? Right. And, I yeah. also wonder, it wasn't clear in this description, but I wonder who the audience was right. for that speech. Well, it was in the 1860s, correct? So it was abolitionists and, I mean, we are in the North, so right. perhaps Northern uh, sympathize people that are, you know, uh, interested in the Union more than they might be interested in uh, anti-slavery things, you know? Sure. I guess I'm just, I'm curious if it was an audience comprised mostly of people of color or right. of white abolitionists or, you know, both or, right. I don't know. I would, I would be curious. I, I mean, obviously it's, I love that his speech was often interrupted with applause. Right. <laughs> we, uh, we almost skipped over one spot here. It's a boarding house, I believe. Yes, that on we Remsen referenced Street. earlier. Yeah. We are on Remsen and Clinton. Yeah. And there was once a fashionable boarding house that belonged to Elizabeth Gloucester. Gloucester and her husband, Reverend James Gloucester, founder of Siloam Presbyterian Church, were leaders of the anti-slavery movement. They were radical abolitionists and donated money to John Brown to raid Harper's Ferry in Virginia. They also contributed money to build Siloam, sorry, I don't know how to say that, Presbyterian Church and to African-American institutions such as the Colored Orphan Asylum. Elizabeth was a skilled financial investor, especially in real estate, and she died with assets worth more than $2 million in today's money. Wow. Yeah, that's impressive. It is. So yeah, I don't, I mean, obviously none of these buildings look like that. That's what it is, but. No. Yeah, and it's unclear to me which, exactly what corner it was, but it generally in this area. Yeah, yeah. Um, that John Brown character, we spoke about him a little bit earlier, but that's an interesting person to me. I didn't know that history before this week. Yeah. And I guess what, I, what I've learned is that he was someone that was anti-slavery. And his, he was a preacher. Yeah. Which I guess I, you know, I often associate church people with like pacifism, but he was actually frustrated with the pacifists in the abolitionist movement and he wanted to sort of, I guess like 
get some momentum, I guess is what his reasoning was. But he ended up being a really violent abolitionist. And um, that was the raid on Harper's Ferry, right? He yeah. ended up killing people and, you know, killing people that were pro-slavery, which I guess we also had a civil war where this was happening. And I don't know if it's... I don't really know how much more to say about it because, like I said, I just am learning about it this week. Right. But it really feels complicated in my mind because I think I would probably be a pacifist if I, you know, I'm not interested in violence and physical violence against other people, even if they are doing violent acts themselves. Like, I don't, I don't think that violence solves violence personally that's not my methodology but I don't know I don't know that I can necessarily judge this person either it seems like a lot of good came out of it and also he seems to have been associated with people that weren't violent themselves right yeah so it yeah I don't know if it's like different time or just more than I can really to right now. Yeah. I think we're at another we've location. We've encountered our next stop here. Yeah, so this church that takes up about half the block here and half the block over there, it's huge. This is currently not the Church of the Pilgrims, but it was the Church of the Pilgrims. It's currently Our Lady of Lebanon Maronite Cathedral. Yeah. In 1844, Henry C. Bowen, a New England transplant, founded the Church of the Pilgrims. Reverend Richard Salter Stores, the church's pastor, spoke frequently to his congregation about the sin of slavery. Stores was also prominent at the Long Island Historical Society, which is now the Brooklyn Historical Society, which actually is now part of the Brooklyn Library, <laughs> that was founded in 1863. Yeah. It's a very impressive structure. Yeah. I wonder how old these carvings on the door are. Yeah, Those I don't are know. They're really cool. Oh, yeah, now it's a Catholic church. Established as a cathedral by Pope Paul VI. And we heard about, when we were walking by here pre-recording, I said to Mike, oh, there's another Pope Paul was here as well. He, he told me that it was a different Pope Paul. Pope John Paul II versus Pope Paul VI. Yeah. Pope Paul VI was after Pope Paul II? Pope John no, Paul? it was before. Interesting. I, Middle name if my papal science. history serves me correctly, I, I believe there was a Pope right prior to John Paul II, whether or not it was that Pope or not, but he died. He didn't last very long. Oh. And John Paul II was kind of an unexpected Pope. Oh. Oh, yeah. It's not surprising, given the historical context, 
but it is something that strikes me about this tour is how much churches play a role in all of this. It's a yeah. spot for people to congregate, as a spot for platforms to be communicated, both the platforms of the church and the platforms of visiting speakers. And as we've heard already a little bit, you know, uh, platforms for ideas that we in contemporary times would consider both virtuous and damnable. That, yeah, that, you know, respectively, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it does, I think it does make a lot of sense in the, like you said, in the historical context, both of this specific walk that, you know, churches serve as a sanctuary. Yeah. But also just uh, in general, that churches were meeting places when, like today, I don't know, I don't know numbers or percentages or data or anything, but I think that back then churches were, like the majority of the population was involved in some way, right? Yeah. yeah. It was a major social. Absolutely. Um, aspect. We've got another one coming up right here, this corner. Right. So here we are. I believe it's the residence or the corner where the Tappans lived. Yeah. So Lewis and Sarah Tappan's home was 86 Pierpont Street. 86. Let's see. I don't know if it's this one or not. If it is, good on them. This one right here. Oh, it's this one? Yeah. Is it where We're, it stood or is it the original? This is 86. Yeah. So I, I'm actually not. It doesn't look like it the It doesn't States, seem original. No. Lewis Tappan was a successful Manhattan merchant, religious reformer, and ardent abolitionist. He worked closely with his brother Arthur, another Brooklyn Heights resident, in these efforts. Lewis founded a mixed congregation church in Manhattan called the Chatham Street Chapel. Both the church and his home were attacked during the anti-abolition riots of 1834. His furniture and other personal belongings taken out into the street and burned. Wow. Tappan moved to Brooklyn Heights in the 1840s, where he lived until his death in 1873. At least one fugitive, a 14-year-old, Anne Maria Weems sought refuge here on her journey from slavery to freedom. Tappan's wife, Sarah, was also an active abolitionist. Their daughter, Lucy Maria, married Henry C. Bowen, whose home we will we'll visit shortly. Yeah. Another daughter, Juliana, was an officer in the Ladies New York Anti-Slavery Society. Yeah. So a whole family of abolitionists in the anti-slavery movement. Yeah. And that, that section about having all your possessions removed into the street and burned, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine.
That's something I don't know if we've called out or not, but something that's throughout the tour of all five locations is reference the idea of the 1863 draft riots. Yeah. Which took place as a consequence of poor uh, people being inscripted into the army. Right. And the basically the, the class tier above African Americans took out their frustration on them because they were falsely under the impression or not fa- I don't you know basically blame them for the war because slavery was a component of why the war was happening right and a lot of people died yeah and Brooklyn became a place where people fled in order to not be you know mobbed right if i am remembering correctly and correct me if i'm mixing things up but a lot of the draft riots happened up in northern manhattan uh i i'm not i think it was kind of all over the city i'm not i'm not entirely sure uh it didn't cover that aspect in the uh tour guide this week so i'm relying on information that's older in my head. Yeah, no, I But it, it I, did I it too. did happen in both rich areas because people were disgruntled with the rich because they could afford right. to because they could pay their way yeah. out of the Yeah. service. Yeah. Right. As well as areas like the Five Points and uh, Chinatown and right. places where there was you know it was poorer. We're on Hicks now and I don't I don't know if we I think we still got a block to go before I think we reach Henry Bowen's house. But we're getting, yeah, we're getting into the <laughs> comparatively quieter part of town. Right. Yeah, it's, so Henry Bowen's house will be on Clark and Hicks Street. Yeah. We don't know the exact address. It's funny now unrelated to the tour, having spent a month walking in the Bronx and we had kind of switched to doing this format every episode rather than sitting down. Right. Which has been a lot of fun. The reason we haven't been doing this format all year is because the streets of New York are pretty noisy. Right. And this is our first week where we've really encountered car traffic after going through Ferry Point Park and the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens and right, we've stepped Cortland and Pelham Bay. Yeah, these quiet areas where there's not the constant noise of traffic. Yeah. We'll see how it goes, I guess. Yeah. But even an area like this still has its fair share of noise. Look at these homes. They're very nice here. Yeah. Those feel older to me, but like not as old as what we're talking about. Yeah. So this was actually on the 
tour as well. This is the Mansion House Hotel. This apartment building stands over the site of the Mansion House Hotel, a popular lodging place for travelers. In 1842, Brooklyn police arrested Edward Saxon, sorry, Edward Saxton here after he was accused of being a fugitive from Mobile, Alabama. Saxton did not receive a trial and was sent to a Baltimore jail where he was presumably sold into slavery. Yeah. So that was part of the Fugitive Slave Act. That's right, which was a huge point of contention, considered to be one of the least respected federal laws in the history of the United States. Yeah. And, and basically what it said was that if you had, it was mostly people, I guess, in the South that had slaves that escaped and fled to the North. And if that was something that had happened to you, you could use this Fugitive Slave Act to send someone or go yourself, I guess, or send some sort of like law enforcement to retrieve the person that had escaped and bring them back. And that was something that happened, I, I believe, after a fairly significant time of the North being like a free area where if you could make it here, you were safe. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, obviously it created a lot of problems. There wasn't the sort of like identification that we system that we have now for people. And also there was, it was really, it was while slavery was still a thing. So the treatment of people wasn't nearly, you know, the same as what we have now. And so there was a lot of mistaken identity and bringing people that, I mean, you know, not that it was okay to be recapturing people to begin with, but then it was a whole nother layer of capturing people that were never even slaves to begin with. Right. So yeah. just many layers of like really horrific uh, things that our government here was allowing and not only allowing, but like encouraging by creating this law. Yeah. It was just another layer of absurdity to the whole situation of trying to consider people property. Yeah. So here we are at, it's unclear exactly where, but one of these buildings would have previously or would be on the, the spot that previously would have been Henry C. Bowen's home. Henry C. Bowen was a wealthy silk and dry goods merchant, was one of the founders of Plymouth Church, which we just saw down the street. Bowen was the son-in-law of Lewis Tappan, another well-known abolitionist who resided in Brooklyn Heights. We just spoke about him. In 1848, Bowen and three others founded The Independent, which was a publication designed to promote the Congressional Church's anti-slavery stance. Yeah. You know, that also makes me just think about like the the distance that people were 
living in or this, you know, the, the space of community. We just walked by the father-in-law's home of a guy who lived right here and the church that they attended was in between the whole, like it's all, all within right. a three block area. Yeah. It seems to be a full community of people. Yeah, very different than, well, not necessarily always different I mean, than Some today, people live like that today still, but not quite as much. There's the potential with trains and planes and automobiles to live further away from each other. Right. Let's see now in the distance, we're getting closer to the promenade and the water. I think we make a left, or right here rather. Yeah. Really impressive building right here. Wow. There's a set of three or four streets right here that are named after fruit. Yes. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to read about this next one as we walk by it? Yes. So 70 Willow Street. 70 Willow Street is Adrian Van Sinderen's home. Van Sinderen was a respected and wealthy businessman and financier. He built this house in 1839. It was one of the oldest surviving houses in Brooklyn Heights. In 1831, Van Sinderen was made the head of the Brooklyn American Colonization Society. The organization attracted some of the city's most known and influential men. They proposed sending free people of color to colonies in Africa. Ironically, Van Sinderen was the employer of one of Brooklyn's most effective and articulate black abolitionist leaders, James Pennington, who worked as his coach driver. Uh, FYI, this house is best known as the Brooklyn home of writer Truman Capote, who had a basement apartment here between 1955 and 1965, which is the time he wrote in Cold Blood. Yep. So, The Colonization Society I, is what we referenced earlier when we spoke about the Anti-Colonization Society. That's right. And the idea there was to move African Americans away so that they would not spoil the, Af the American society. Right. And James Pennington, who we just they said, ironically, Van Sinderen was the employer of James Pennington. Um, I guess it's ironic because what I've really just learned again from that play that we referenced earlier that was put on at Irondale, 
um, along with this project. We, you see James Pennington, the character, uh, explained a bit, and he, if my memory serves me correctly, he was uh, someone that escaped slavery as a young boy and came up north and became a writer and he was educated at some of the more prestigious colleges and he wrote books on um, about the abolitionist movement and was really like an influence on uh, encouraging people to join the anti-slavery and abolitionist movement. Right. Yeah, that was my understanding based on the play as well. And yeah, it's, it's wild to, to think that the two of them coexisted in the same space. Employer, employee, as well as, and then having separate passions, but still maintaining that relationship. Right. And not only just separate passions, but like different, you know, I don't know if they're necessarily opposite views, but definitely not views that are alike. Right. And about a concept that directly would affect Pennington's life you know, in, in like drastic ways. Yeah. So here we are at... Our final stop in the Brooklyn Heights section. Right, um, and it is Plymouth Church. Yeah. This is 57 Orange Street. Plymouth Church was founded in 1847, and Henry Ward Beecher, one of the most famous abolitionists in the country, was its first minister. From the pulpit of this church, the fiery and controversial minister condemned the institution of slavery and those who practiced it. The church was built in the amphitheater style to accommodate the crowds who came to hear him. Sorry. The church was built in the amphitheater style to accommodate the crowds who came to hear him. People flocked from Manhattan in such large numbers that the Fulton Ferry was apparently nicknamed Beecher's Boats. Beecher also conducted auctions, raising funds to free enslaved girls. Reminiscent of slave auctions, they whipped up frenzied outrage and generated significant donations. Under Beecher's direction, the church gained a national reputation as a bastion of abolitionism. So those auctions that they speak of, it was a I still don't completely understand. We, we read about it. We watched a, the in the play. They show it. But I guess it was like a fake auction. It was kind of just like a dramatized auction that would be happening while ushers were passing around baskets at the church collecting money. Right. And then it was, yeah, it was just unclear to me, like, if they counted up the money and that was part of the auctioning thing or if people were when they yelled out, was that how much they were willing to donate? I don't, right. it was unclear to me like exactly what the point <laughs> of like doing it like that was other than just to 
because it was something that people were familiar with. Right. Of course, like in today's society, that would be abhorrent. Like no, you know. Yeah. People would be insanely offended and yeah. upset. Um, and I think we would know not to do that. And it sounds like even then people were, it was, I mean, it says it was controversial. I think some people got really excited about it. It clearly did raise money, but then it seems like a lot of people were not into his methods. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It does, I mean, strike the contemporary mind as problematic. But they were able to raise money. This is also a location where Abraham Lincoln worshipped twice. And he worshipped here before he accepted the nomination of the Republican Party. Right. And there's a little... Yeah. Uh, I don't know what you call that. Sketch. <laughs> a relief, Metal maybe. sketch, yeah. Um, and also Harriet Beecher... Stowe. That was right. Is related. That to was Henry Ward Beecher's sister, and she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. So lots of history here. Also, a piece of Plymouth Rock is here. Underneath the church. Is that the case? I don't. I think that's what I read the other day. Yeah. Yeah. So this concludes our Brooklyn Heights walk. Yeah. We have one more spot to check out, and that is the Weeksville Heritage Center. Time flash. See you there. Okay, we're at our final stop of the podcast, the Weeksville Heritage Center, which is a fantastic facility. I'm going to give you a pan in just a second while Jesse reads a little bit about the Weeksville neighborhood and uh, how it was formed and, and the implications of it. Right, so the Weeksville Heritage Center and the Weeksville neighborhood are what is in current day Crown Heights. And I'm gonna read from the Pursuit of Freedom document that we've been following. The financial panic of 1837 halted Brooklyn's rapid urban transformation. One year later, free black New Yorkers took advantage of low property prices to intentionally establish the community of Weeksville as a self-sufficient haven for African-Americans. Located in Brooklyn's ninth ward, Weeksville was the most distant and secluded anti-slavery base from the city's downtown area. Thus, it offered safety, refuge, and freedom to its residents. Weeksville was named after longshoreman James Weeks, one of the original land investors and the only one to live in the area. The community thrived throughout the 19th century. It was the second largest free African-American community in the United States during the pre-Civil War era, and the only one to have an urban rather than rural base. Weeksville had its own independent businesses, churches, schools, newspaper, home for the elderly, and orphanage, and many residents owned their own homes. With land ownership, black men gained full citizenship with voting rights. Excellent. And so the facility right now is closed to go into the buildings because of COVID, but we have an opportunity to investigate these really impressive grounds. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's take a walk let's down. Let's take a walk. We're currently, I guess we didn't address this, there's this second floor balcony yeah. right above where 
you enter through the the main gate yeah and that's what's giving us these awesome views over the full yeah. ground nice open area here where you're welcome to come and sit with blankets and hang out according to the staff here yeah it's Every uh it's a little overcast today but i am wondering if people do that yeah often because it's it's such a nice spot in the middle of a because this area doesn't have a ton of parks and green spaces yeah and this is so nice and peaceful. Yeah. This beautiful wooden walkway here. It's a nice raised platform as an alternative to walking across the grass. So, of course, there's that facility over there, which unfortunately I don't know much about since we can't go in there. The people working here said that um, of course, it's all closed going into the buildings for COVID, but they're, you know, hoping to reopen. It might not be until the beginning of next year, but yeah. whenever that happens, we'll have to come back and check yeah. that out too. So do you want to read off the description for the houses? Yeah, so these are the Hunterfly Road houses, and I'm going to read from my phone here it says the four hunterfly road houses date from 1840 to 1883 the houses were continually inhabited primarily by african americans from their construction until their acquisition or sorry until their acquisition in 1968 by the weeksville heritage center it's so uncommon to see a type of house like this in the city. I almost feel like the times I've seen something like this are when we were in Staten Island. Yeah. I feel like there might be a house like this somewhere in Manhattan, but I can't remember where. Yeah, they're spread and around. Definitely like we've seen a couple in Queens, but yeah, it really is a rare sight and it They're like longer. Not as tall, but longer right. than you'd see in the city, typically. Right. And we have the ability to kind of walk around them, too. I don't think in this direction, but... Oh, it looks like you can go around oh, in this okay. direction. Nice back. Oh, I guess this is where area. you would typically go in. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> Scoot around this flower bed here. Oh, there's a little cat. Oh, hi. Hi. Whoop. <laughs> I saw a little cat house in the front. Yeah. Just before him. 
Yeah, the backs of the buildings look cool too. It's so nice to have this kind of oasis of difference in the city. Yeah. In terms of the architecture. And yeah, it's it. really, there's this something so, <laughs> so pleasant about this space. Um, not as opposed to, but like in addition to the green spaces and parks and things yeah. like that. Like it, it's like this space of, uh, that creates a sense of wonder. Yeah. And for the purposes of this podcast, we're just going to this location in Weeksville, but there's a whole uh, collection of other locations as part of the In Pursuit of Freedom tour. And it includes uh, a home for the uh, aged that existed at that time, mm -hmm. an orphanage that was here. A church. Uh, yeah, a church, a, I think a couple of churches. and. Uh, a school as well that I believe right. was the first integrated school in Brooklyn. And a cemetery as well. Yeah, the cemetery that the bodies got moved to Cypress yeah. Hills. So that's all in this area. And there's also on the In Pursuit of Freedom tour, which we did not get to for the podcast, there is also a tour through Williamsburg. Yes, that's right. So we'll definitely put the link to the whole thing even in the neighborhoods that we did cover as in addition to Weeksville um, earlier in the show, yeah. we didn't stop at every single stop. Yeah. So I would encourage people to take the tour yourselves. It's really interesting to walk around. I mean, this is beautiful to see. I, I had never been here. I didn't realize that this existed, but it's been awesome to learn about this and it was also really interesting to walk around neighborhoods that I'm super familiar with and have been walking around for years without knowing that whole layer of history. Yeah. There's a, there's a little sculpture yeah. garden here. One note with respect to Williamsburg and some of the other areas that we haven't hit in this podcast in our 360 video you can find a link to now uh, covered a bunch of other spots that weren't in this podcast if you're interested but yeah i really like this sculpture yeah i'm not i looked around for more details on it but i couldn't find mm. anything about it specifically it seems to be made out of tires oh yeah i think you're right But I think that concludes the Weeksville Heritage portion yeah. of the tour. Yeah, so we'll see you back in our apartment in a little bit. Thanks for joining along so far. Yeah. We'll give you a proper closeout in like two seconds. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, thanks so much for watching. We hope you enjoyed our tour around Brooklyn. Thanks again to the In Pursuit of Freedom folks the Brooklyn Historical Society, the Weeksville Heritage Center, and Irondale for putting this all together. We had a great time following it. We recommend that if this is something you're interested in, go check it out.
as we said just previously, we didn't cover all of the sites. We didn't cover Williamsburg at all, which was just as fascinating. We just ran out of time, but we <laughs> recommend uh, going to see it. Yeah, absolutely. This was a really great tour. And uh, yeah, thanks again to the people that put it together. And thanks to all of you for joining us virtually on yeah. this tour. Yeah. If you like this, please hit the like button. Please subscribe if you haven't previously. We're looking to get to 1,000 subscribers before week 52. Will we do it? Will we not? I don't know. We'll, see. we'll find out. But <laughs> until next time, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.